1: to the serialized audiobook Contagious, book 2 of the Infected Trilogy, written by number 1 New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/contagious. Teen Angst Margaret refused to cry. She had a job to do. But looking at the flat panel monitor, looking at that poor girl's face, Let me go! the girl screamed. She pulled weakly against the restraints, but she wasn't going anywhere. Even if she got out of the restraints, she couldn't escape the tiny containment chamber's clear, reinforced walls. Cameras mounted outside her chamber provided an excellent view. White epoxy walls blazed under the ceiling's embedded neon lights. Leather cuffs held Betty Jewel's wrists and ankles tight to the autopsy trolley. A disposable roll of thin foam on top of the trolley gave it a little bit of padding, but it was still a steel cart and wasn't designed with comfort in mind. She wore a blue hospital gown spotted with purple where her oozing sores leaked blood. We injected her with the WDE four hundred eleven formula, Dan said. That slowed the apoptosis reaction but she's still breaking down, particularly around her facial lesions. We have to operate immediately, Amos said. We have to get rid of that compromised tissue, see if we can stop the chain reaction entirely. Margaret turned to Dan. Has she given any indication of when she started showing symptoms? What has she said so far? She just won't talk to us, he said. She believes we're here to kill her. She keeps asking for her father, but I think she knows her father's dead. She's asking for her mother, too. Did you contact the mother? Margaret asked. Dan shook his head. We haven't tried. Amos turned on him. What the hell do you mean you haven't tried? The girl just lost her father. She needs her family. I have orders to keep any infected victims in isolation, Dan said. No contact of any kind until I've relinquished custody, which I'm doing now to you, Dr. Montoya. Well, fine, Margaret said. We've got custody now. Clarence, please call the girl's mother. No, Clarence said. Margaret stared at him, dumbfounded. Dan, she could understand. He was military, but Clarence? We are calling this girl's family, and right now. I'm afraid we can't do that, Doc, Clarence said. But she doesn't have triangles, Margaret said. She's got something, sure, but nothing is going to hatch out of her. She's not a threat. Clarence shook his head. You know we can't say that for sure, Margaret. How many times have you told me that the disease might shift Might become contagious. You said it's mutated, right? Margaret didn't know what to say. He was using her own words against her. Amos jabbed a finger at the monitor. That is an American citizen in that cage. Yes, cage. She's got rights, goddammit! Clarence again shook his head. Not right now, she doesn't. We contact the mother, and the next thing you know, the press is all over it. The press? Amos shouted. You're worried about the press? Listen up, you goose-stepping asshole. Amos, stop it, Margaret said. He's right. She could be contagious. Amos looked at her like she was crazy. Well, sure she could be contagious, he said. That's why we have her in a fucking BSL-4 containment cell. It doesn't change the fact that she's a scared teenage girl. She needs her family. We can bring in the mother, keep her under surveillance or whatever. He's right about the media, too, Margaret said. "'Margaret, what the hell is wrong with you?' Amos said. "'You're a doctor. Remember the phrase, "'Primum non nocere?' Margaret swallowed. The phrase was Latin for, "'First, do no harm.' It wasn't actually part of the Hippocratic Oath, but the words were still drilled into every med student's head. "'Yes, I remember,' she said. "'I also remember another Latin phrase, "'the one we found painted in Gitwin's bedroom.' the house with all the dead kids. E. Unum Pluribus. You remember that? Amos said nothing. He looked away. What's that mean, Amos? Say it. It means, out of one, many, he said quietly. So we follow the orders, Margaret said. We don't call the girl's family. Get suited up. We're going to go in there and talk to her. Fully suited. Margaret and Amos walked into the autopsy room. An airtight door led into the collapsible walkway that connected Trailer B. Margaret watched the light above that door turn from red to green. Amos pulled up on the latch and swung the door outward to reveal a four-foot-long corridor and a matching door on the other side. They had to close their door to open the other, both because it was an airlock and because there wasn't enough room in the corridor to open both. When it came time to move the Margo-mobile, built-in nozzles would douse the walkway's interior with the chlorine combo. Gitch and Marcus would then fold the walkway into its bracket inside Trailer B, shut the seamless outer door, and the Margot Mobile would make like Willie Nelson, on the road again. She stepped into the walkway. Amos shut the door behind her. Above the door to Trailer B, the light turned from red to green. Amos opened that door, and they stepped through. Only four feet away sat Betty's containment cell. The girl lifted her head to see them, and Margaret's heart nearly broke in two. Three giant black sores soiled the left side of her face, one centered on her cheekbone, one on her jaw where it met the neck, and one up on her temple. The last one undercut dark hair that must have been beautiful once. Now, wet strands clung to her face, her forehead, and the table around her. The decomposing black sores on her face were by far the worst, but they weren't the only trouble areas. At least two dozen dime-sized circles spotted her body. Her hands looked terrible. Half the skin there was wrinkled, black, and oozing. Her fingers, like a modern art sculpture made from wet raisins. Several IV needles ran into the veins on her feet. Two of the few unblemished areas left on her body. The girl shook with sobs. Even though she'd been strapped down for something like sixteen hours, she had no shortage of tears. Margaret Namus walked up to the clear glass cell. A flat-panel touchscreen controller mounted on the door served as a wireless interface for all systems in the containment cell. It could even be used to trigger a last-ditch emergency sterilization. All someone had to do was type in pound five four five five in every inch of both trailers would fill with a deadly chlorine-bleach combination. Margaret hit a button to turn on the intercom system. They would be able to hear Betty on their earpieces, and their voices would be pumped into speakers inside the cell. Hello, Betty, Margaret said. Betty stopped whimpering for a second, just long enough to draw in a huge, ragged lungful of air. Let me go! We can't, Margaret said. You're very ill. No fucking shit, I'm ill, you fucking assholes. Did you do this to me? Please, get my dad, get my mom, please. Your father is dead, Amos said. Margaret quickly pressed a button on the touchscreen to turn off the intercom. Amos, what are you doing? Telling her the truth. Margaret wanted to smack him right in the mouth. Amos, we need to get this girl to talk, not put her into further hysterics. Margaret, I've got a teenage daughter. He said, You do not, so shut the fuck up. He had a cold look on his face, an expression Margaret hadn't seen on him before. Amos was personalizing this, projecting Betty's situation onto his own child. He reached for the button and turned on the chamber speakers. It's true, Betty. Your father is dead. I'm very sorry. Margaret realized that Betty wasn't screaming anymore. The girl still had tears streaming down her ruined face but there was also a hard lucidity in those eyes. Daddy's dead. You killed him? He died in the parking lot before anyone could get to him, Amos said, before anyone could help him. A single sob hit her body like a big cough, and then she lay still. But I've been here for like hours, Betty said, fighting back sobs. Why? Why didn't anyone just fucking tell me? Because they didn't think you could handle it. Amos said. They treated you like a child. I'm sorry about that, but Dr. Montoya and I are in charge now. My name is Dr. Amos Braun. What's... what's happening to me? You're very sick, Amos said. You have whatever killed your father. We don't know why it's developing more slowly in you. Why are you doing this to me? We're trying to save you, Amos said. We need to ask you some important questions first. Where were you and your father coming from? Just let me go, Betty said in a low voice. I'm not one of the ones you want, I swear. Don't kill me. Please, don't kill me. Betty, we're not trying to kill you. I will slash your throat, you needle dick motherfucker. She yanked at her restraint so hard, the heavy trolley wobbled. Let me go, let me go, let me go. Amos, we need to put her under, Margaret said. She's paranoid. Amos ignored Margaret. His face showed anguish, his deep need to see Betty calm down and cooperate. Was it Betty Jewel he saw in there or his own daughter, rotting, terrified, and strapped down to an autopsy trolley? Where were you coming from? He asked. We need to know where you were. Betty stared at them, wide eyes full of hate and terror. She screamed, one long, ragged note. She stopped only long enough to draw a deep breath, then hit the ragged note again. Please, Amos said. Stop this. We're trying to help you. Amos, that's enough, Margaret said. She reached to the control panel and hit a button, sending 50 milligrams of propofol through one of the IV needles taped to Betty's feet. Amos put both of his gloved hands on the glass. He and Margaret silently watched as Betty's scream slowed, faded, and stopped. She's out, Margaret said. Then let's get her wheeled in a trailer, eh? Amos said. I want to operate immediately. Boat island in Frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Mixed Messages. The neural net stretched through Betty's frontal lobe, but it was still very thin. Too thin to send the signal. It needed more connections. For hours, Betty's crawlers had fought the dissolving chain reaction, struggling to reach her brain. The WDE-411 injection turned out to be a lifeline for the crawlers. Combined with their own apoptosis antidote secretions, it stalled the chain reaction before it grew so bad that they couldn't even move. As Margaret and Amos wheeled Betty through the collapsible walkway and into the autopsy room, some of the muscle fibers coalesced at the center of Betty's brain, tore themselves to bits, and formed a ball. Where Chelsea's ball of fibers was 1,000 microns wide, Betty's was closer to 600, just over half the size. It was enough to send a weak signal. And enough to receive a response. That response signal wasn't for the crawlers. It was meant for the host. The remaining crawlers stopped producing the apoptosis antidote and started flooding Betty's brain with neurotransmitters. They had to wake her up, wake her up, so she could receive the signal. Sheffy's Open Door Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. The phrase is attributed to Herodotus and refers to the courier service of the ancient Persian Empire. Many people incorrectly think this is the motto of the United States Postal Service. The phrase is inscribed over the James A. Farley post office in New York City, but it's not an official slogan. Official or not, John Burkle figured it was a pretty dead nuts on-target description for driving a white postal truck in weather 15 goddamn degrees below freezing complimented By goddamn 30-mile-per-hour winds, they were blowing thin sheets of snow right across the goddamn back roads. Who drives in this weather? Postal workers. That's who. He drove the truck's right wheel into a frozen rut in front of the Franklin place. Yesterday, this had been a mud puddle filled with chunks of brown ice. That was because it had been 50 degrees for two straight days. If you don't like the weather in Michigan... John stuffed the Franklins' mail into their metal mailbox, then drove to the next house. Houses were pretty spaced out around here, at least a couple of acres apart. The next house belonged to Sheffy Jones. Sheffy had always been a little bit off, hit in the head in an industrial accident or something. Pretty much kept to himself. Plenty of time to buy shit on eBay, though. John put four small packages into Sheffy's supersized mailbox. Sometimes Sheppy came out to get his mail and say hello. John looked towards the house but didn't see any movement. He started to drive on, then stopped short and looked back. Was the front door open? It was. He was a good hundred feet away, and it was a little hard to see, but it looked as if something covered in snow was blocking the door. Fifteen below zero, and the front door was open. John put the postal van in park. He reached into his bag and pulled out his taser. Could be a burglar in there. Did Sheffy have a dog? John couldn't remember. He had a schedule to keep, but he didn't feel right ignoring an open door in weather like this. He cautiously approached the house. Sheffy, he called out. Out here, you really didn't want to approach a house quietly. People took gun rights seriously in northern Michigan. You made a lot of noise and let them know you were coming so as not to be mistaken for a robber if the homeowner was sober or for a deer if he was exceedingly drunk. The door was open about eight inches. Underneath a light coating of snow, something long and thin and black blocked the door. John walked up on the porch for a closer look. It was a hand. A black, skeletal hand. Despite a thick layer of blue post office winter wear, John Burkle Sprinted back to the van in near Olympic qualifying time. Betty Jewell's face. Betty Jewell picked the worst possible time in the history of mankind to wake up. Eyes still closed. She wondered how many flavors of pain there were. Baskin-Robbins didn't have shit on her. Stay still. She didn't know where those words came from. Not her ears. With her ears, she heard the clanking of instruments and the muffled voices of a man and a woman. Those voices were connected with one of the new flavors. They were cutting into her face, for fuck's sake. Agony, pure hell. But was it any worse than the fire rippling through her entire body? Shit, did it even matter which was worse? Either one was enough to make her put a gun in her mouth and pull the trigger if it just meant the pain would stop. Betty, you have to save your soul. Her soul? Couldn't she just save her face? You don't need a soul for senior pictures. Oh, God, did it hurt. So much pain. Kill them, Betty. Kill the people who are hurting you. Then all your pain will go away. That voice, so beautiful. Was it the voice of God? If not, how else could she hear it? But really, it didn't matter who was speaking, because the voice promised her that the pain would stop. For that, Betty would do anything. Her right cheek rested on a hard pillow. They had put her on her right side, left arm still behind her in the cuff. The man and the woman hovered over her, fucking with her face, her once beautiful face. She felt them cutting. Which one was hurting her this bad? Dr. Braun, that Mexican bitch, it didn't matter. They were in it together, they would pay together. She slowly opened just her right eye. She saw nothing but blue. They had covered her face with a napkin or something. It felt as though the napkin also covered her left eye. Could she open it? She decided not to. She had an advantage only as long as they thought she was out. Whatever the napkin was it didn't quite reach to the table. If she looked down the table with only her right eye, she could see just under the napkin all the way down her right arm, all the way down to the leather cuff that held her fast. She moved her left foot very slowly. They had uncuffed her feet to turn her on her side. With all her weight on her right shoulder, she couldn't pull her right hand without making her whole body lurch. But she could pull the left hand if she did it very, very slowly. Just a little bit at a time. Real slow. A steady, gradual increase of pressure. This doesn't make any sense, the man said. The rubber suit muffled his voice, but she could make out his words. He sounded very close, like he was leaning down right over the top of her covered face. She doesn't have any triangles, the man said. She doesn't have the colored fibers of Morgellons. So what's causing all this excessive cell death? Betty kept pulling. It hurt. A new flavor added to the dessert bar. She felt a tearing sensation. Without a sound, she kept pulling, kept applying constant pressure. The skin slowly sloughed off her hand, allowing her to pull the hand through the cuff like sliding off a bloody black glove. She felt chunks of ruined skin bunching up on the cuff's far side. She knew she should have been horrified, but it was too late for that. God helps those who help themselves. She needed to act. Without her skin, things would be slippery. She'd have to get it exactly right. Margaret, look at this, the man said. I, oh my God, I see something. There's something moving in here, something really tiny. Put the magnifiers on, look. He'd taken the Lord's name in vain, sinner. Betty heard the zip-zip of a rubber suit as the woman moved to stand next to the man. What the hell is that, Amos? The woman's voice, also right in front of her, also hovering right over her face. It looks like, it looks like a nerve cell. This is amazing, the man said. You can see it moving. It's hard to tell with all the damage, but I think it's following the v 3 nerve toward the brain. Betty felt her left hand slide all the way inside the cuff. She didn't pull it out, not yet, but now she could any time she chose. Cut it out of there, the woman said. Maybe these things are what's causing the rot. If we can get them out, maybe we can stabilize her. Sample tray, please, the man said. Crawling organelle isolated and removed. Examining. Object tears into smaller pieces. Margaret, look! These pieces look sort of like... like muscle fibers. They're moving on their own. Get another one out of her face, the woman said. Let's get some side-by-side video of these. Betty waited. She waited until she felt the scalpel slide in again. Waited until she was sure she felt it hit her cheekbone. She waited for that, so she knew exactly where it was. Keeping her head and body as still as she could, Betty Jewell slid her hand out of the cuff. Margaret watched Amos' deft, delicate technique as he cut away the rotting flesh, searching for another crawling nerve. The high powered magnifying goggles mounted in front of her visor showed Betty's open wound with amazing detail. A super close up landscape of blood vessels, muscle, veins, bone, and black rot. And amid all that, something moving. So tiny. Dendrite like arms seemed to stretch out like an amoeba's pseudopods. The arms contracted, pulling the body forward, the tail dragging behind. Just like the camera mounted in Margaret's helmet the magnifying goggles would record their own feed. Judging by the rapid rate of rot, watching that video might be the only way she could study these things because they wouldn't be around for long. And neither would Betty, unless they could do something drastic. This isn't like Dossie at all, Margaret said. Unless this is some larval stage, something that was already over before we examined him. You got me, Amos said. Wait, here's another one. Look at that crawling along the afferent nerve. Let me get it out of there. Margaret watched closely. Amos's scalpel danced around a second patch of black rot, cutting it out in a neat circle. Then a flash of red, a blur, something that looked huge through the high magnification glasses. That sudden movement, like it was flying at her face, made Margaret rear back. She heard a snap and a gurgling sound. Margaret whipped her right hand up under the magnifying goggles, knocking them off her head. Betty Jewell sat up. Not all the way up. Her right hand remained locked in the cuff, but her bloody, skinless left hand waved free, holding a scalpel. Amos's gloved hands clutched frantically at his suit-covered throat, grabbing, trying to claw through the black PVC. Blood sprayed against the inside of his visor. Drips of it leaked down the black suit's outer surface, leaked from the small hole in his suit. He took a half-step back. Betty lunged forward again with the scalpel, her restrained right arm making the movement awkward and off balance. The scalpel's tips sliced through his suit, just above the left pectoral. Betty gathered for another strike. Margaret grabbed Amos's shoulders and yanked him away from the trolley. She pulled far too hard for the confined space. They smashed into the trailer wall and fell to the floor. Amos landed on top. He kicked and kept grabbing at his throat, glove fingers trying to reach inside the hole and tear it open, but the blood-slick PVC fabric wouldn't give him purchase. Amos, get off me! Margaret pushed and pulled at the small man, trying to free her legs. She looked up to see Betty slide her knees underneath her body. The girl rose up, kneeling on the autopsy trolley, right arm still trapped by the cuff. She leaned toward the cuff, then crossed her skinless left hand over the inside of her right elbow. Oh, God, Margaret hissed. Betty yanked backward, twisting to the right, throwing all her weight against the cuff. Her right hand slid free. Chunks of sloth skin fell to the floor with a wet slap. Momentum carried her over the trolley's left side. She hit the white floor, droplets of blood splattering across the autopsy chamber. Amos's movements slowed. Margaret managed to kick her legs free. She pushed Amos off, then stood, her back against the trailer wall. Betty leaned her right shoulder against the sink and pushed herself up with wobbling legs. Blood streaked her blue gown, the only clothing on an otherwise naked body. The right side of her face was mostly cut away, black and white cheekbone blazing under red smears, bits of jellyish rot still clinging to what little skin remained. Margaret just stared. She couldn't move a muscle. She wanted to run, to scream, but she couldn't even draw a breath. Blood dripped from Betty's skinless fingers. She still held the scalpel in her left hand, cradled it more than gripped it, trying to keep the stainless steel steady against exposed, blood-slick muscles. Betty smiled. Only with the left half of her face, of course, because the muscles on the right side were mostly gone. You brish. She slurred. Let's see how you like it. She shuffled forward, trying to keep her balance, bare feet leaving bloody streaks on the white floor. The autopsy trolley was the only thing separating her from Margaret. Betty reached down with her right hand and rolled it out of the way. She pulled her hand back, but her right pointer finger stayed behind, stuck to the trolley in a red and black mess of rotted meat and jutting bone. Betty half-smiled again. She stood only three feet away. She took a small shuffle step forward. Margaret still couldn't will her muscles to move, not even a bit. Her breath returned in a sucking gasp, then shot out in a ragged scream that sounded impossibly loud inside her suit helmet. But not so loud that she didn't hear the gunshot. The right side of Betty's head, the undamaged side, exploded outward in a fist-sized hole that sprayed blood brains, and bone onto the back wall and into the sink. She dropped like a cloth puppet. Margaret! Clarence's voice, muffled. Margaret, are you okay? Did she cut you? She turned to his voice. He wore his black biohazard suit. Gitch and Marcus, also wearing suits, were right behind him. Clarence's gloved hand held a pistol, still smoking. He knelt by her side. The gun pointed down and away from her. Gitch's gloved right hand held a knife, much larger than Betty's scalpel. He cut away at Amos's suit, slicing it open at the chest and neck. Blood sloshed out of the cut as if someone had wrung out a soaked towel. It splattered on the floor and on Gitch's feet as he reached in to apply pressure. Marcus grabbed Amos's legs. Clarence, get him on the table, Marcus said. His jugular is cut. Gitch, keep that pressure there. Margaret, get his helmet off. The men lifted Amos and set him on the already bloody trolley. Margaret found herself standing, pulling off Amos' helmet. Gitch's gloved hand stayed pressed down on Amos' neck. Blood covered Amos' face, matted his hair, pooled in his eyes. His wide-open eyes. She looked at Gitch's gloves. There was no blood oozing up from beneath the fingers. Amos. Margaret's thoughts snapped back into place. Do exactly what I say she ordered. Remove your hands on a count of three, then be ready to reapply pressure as soon as I say go. One, two, three. Gitch pulled his hands back a few inches, where they hovered, ready to be put back into use. No blood flowed. The scalpel had punched in just to the right of Amos's windpipe, then slid outward, slicing open the whole right side of his neck. She couldn't check his pulse without taking off her gloves, but she didn't need to. Amos was dead. Smoochies! Chelsea turned the knob ever so slowly. It didn't make a sound. Neither did the door when she opened it. She crept into her parents' room. Daddy was snoring. He always snored. Sometimes Mommy would go to sleep on the couch, but not tonight. She must have been tired. When Daddy snored, His mouth was always wide open. He looked silly. Mommy slept with her mouth closed. Chelsea would have to fix that. She tiptoed up to the bed, her pajama feet barely a whisper on the carpeting. Mommy wanted to make her go to the doctor? The doctor who poked her with stuff? The doctor who had the needles? Well, now Chelsea was in charge. Chauncey had said so and Mommy wasn't going to make her do anything anymore. Chelsea stood at the edge of the bed, looking down at Mommy. Mommy had such a pretty face. Chelsea reached out with her finger and thumb and slowly, tenderly, pinched Mommy's nose shut. Not enough to hurt her, just enough to stop the air from going in. There were a few seconds where nothing happened. Then Mommy's mouth opened and she took in a sharp breath. Chelsea let go of Mommy's nose and dropped to the floor, lying flat against the edge of the bed. If Mommy woke up, she'd have to look over the edge to see Chelsea down there. Chelsea waited, but Mommy didn't seem to move. It was so hard not to giggle. Chelsea slowly got to her knees, then to her feet, real quiet, like it was slow motion in the movies. Her head rose up until her eyes peeked over the edge of the bed Mommy's mouth was still open. Her eyes were still closed. She was breathing real slow. Mommy was asleep. Make her obey. Chelsea nodded. She moved her head slowly forward. Chelsea waited three more seconds to see if Mommy would wake up. One one thousand. Two one thousand. Three one thousand. Ready or not, Mommy. Here I come. Chelsea put her lips over Mommy's lips. Her tongue caressed Mommy's tongue. There was a fizzing sound and a feeling like putting a bunch of pop rocks in your mouth. Chelsea fell to the floor again, this time rolling under the bed, trying so hard not to giggle. Ah, Mommy said. Chelsea felt the bed move as Mommy awoke and sat up fast. She made a noise that was like coughing and spitting at the same time. The bed twitched with Mommy's sharp movements. Ugh, Mommy said. My mouth. Hun, Daddy said in a sleepy voice. "Hun, Bun, you okay? No, my mouth is on fire. Did you eat something? No, I was sleeping. Even with a burning mouth, Mommy could still do that thing with her voice where she made it sound like Daddy was really stupid. Just relax. You must have had a bile burp or something. Little acid came up. Ah, Mommy said. "Uh Uh-huh. Go rinse out with mouthwash, Daddy said. Take a Rolades. Chelsea felt the bed move again. She kept herself very still. Mommy's feet hit the floor. Then she walked to the bathroom. The bathroom light came on for a second before the door shut behind her, leaving just an illuminated outline of the door. Chelsea felt the bed thump again. Then only two seconds later, Daddy snored. Wow, was he good at that? She bit down on her hand to choke back some major giggles. Daddy sounded so funny. Chelsea Jewel slid out from under the bed and quietly ran to the bedroom door. She eased out into the hallway, carefully shutting the door behind her, and in seconds was back in her own bed. I did it, Chauncey! she whispered. I did it. She will not make you go to the doctor now. Tomorrow, you will be in charge. For real? You don't have to talk out loud to talk to me. If you think really hard, I can hear you. Chelsea squealed and hid her face in her pillow. Chauncey was special. For real? Try it. Tell me your favorite color. Chelsea controlled her giggles and tried to think hard, whatever that meant. She liked pink, but blue was real nice, too. And she had those light blue socks with the brown stripes that Daddy bought her on his last trip, and then... Focus. Your mind is full of thoughts. Concentrate. Chelsea took a deep breath. She closed her eyes and thought. Pink. She opened her eyes and looked at the ceiling. Could Chauncey really hear her thoughts? If he could, then he had to be God. That's a lucky guess, Chauncey. Then pick your favorite number. She nodded and closed her eyes. When she thought of the number, she smiled to herself, then concentrated really hard. Number one. Chelsea threw her face into the pillow and squealed with delight. It will get easier the more you do it. Now go to sleep. Tomorrow is an important day. Good night, Chauncey, Chelsea thought, as loud as she could. She rolled over and closed her eyes. It was so cool to have a special friend. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by...